uh, growing in the Mediterranean world of that day. And uh, if you recall, we began our series months ago with uh, uh, the letters of Timothy, in which Paul is exhorting his genuine son in the faith to press on, to continue in establishing the church, to preach the word faithfully, to raise up elders in the church, and to protect the flock from false teaching. And we find similar themes in the book of Titus, this letter that Paul writes to another son in the faith, uh, likely a convert of Paul's, who is also now a trusted deputy in uh, advancing uh, the kingdom purposes of the early church. And uh, scholars believe that, uh, as with 1 Timothy, Titus was a letter written after Paul's Roman imprisonment that we find in the book of Acts, likely during a fourth missionary journey not recorded uh, in the uh, narrative of Acts, and preceding Paul's final Roman imprisonment that we find in the book of 2 Timothy, uh, before his uh, final martyrdom at the hands of Emperor Nero, around 67 or 68 A.D. Paul was a delegator, and he is entrusting to these capable young men responsibilities of leadership in a young church. He knows his days are numbered, and he's empowering these young men to uh, lead as he passes on the torch to them. These letters raise several questions about leadership in the church, and we rightly ask, what is it we're to expect from our elders? our teaching elders, our pastors, as well as our ruling elders. And uh, there's also a counter question to ask the church. What Church, what is your responsibility in the ongoing maintenance and preservation of sound leadership in your pulpit and on your session, in leading the church of today and for tomorrow? We want to consider these questions as we work through uh, chapter 1 of Titus. Let us read uh, God's word together. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus. My true Son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. 
and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they defy him, deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, our Father, we thank you that you have not left us without direction in how to govern, how to lead your church, how to carry out the responsibilities of of leadership and shepherding your flock. We thank you that you've given us these epistles with powerful words of exhortation and wisdom and insight that is truly inspired and has been passed down through the ages. We thank you, O Lord, that you have spoken to us, that you have not stuttered, that you have made your will clear to us. We pray that you would clarify it tonight as we pour over this text together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I developed a bit of a reputation during my junior year at Vanderbilt University as a residential advisor. I was working on a, in an all-male freshman dorm, the only one of its kind on campus, and my hall had the glorious distinction of amassing more dorm damage than the rest of the campus combined. It was something to the effect of about $12,000 over the course of the year. Broken windows, broken doors off their hinges, broken light fixtures and ceiling tiles, and what else do we have? Uh, Fire alarms, mirrors, toilet seat covers, and strange stains in the stairwell. We even had a water fountain ripped off the wall by one young man. I wisely waited until he had sobered up a bit to speak with him about that matter. I had the privilege of having about half of the Kappa Alpha fraternity pledge class uh, on my hall, a notoriously rowdy fraternity on campus. And uh, if ever I had an experience like Titus in Crete. It was my junior year at Vanderbilt on a freshman hall dorm. Now, to my knowledge, I never developed a nickname that year, but if I had, I think the nickname Enforcer might have been appropriate. Uh, Seems that I was one of the few RAs that actually enforced the policy. When I was on duty, I would make my rounds in our dorm and I would politely knock on the doors from which was coming ruckus music and noise, and I would go in to inspect uh, the residents for possessions uh, of substance. And um, I heard just about every excuse in the book as to why 18-year-olds should be able to smoke or drink whatever they should well please. But that did not faze me. 
They were clearly violating policy, and it was a policy that I endorsed and accepted as in the best interest of these young men, as uh, well as good for the community at large. Now, I don't know if they kept records, but I, I imagine I may have been near the top of the record books in terms of the number of young men I wrote up to send to the dean. Uh, unfortunately, my efforts were undermined by uh, a dean who was notorious for being chummy with the students and kowtowing to uh, the, the pleading and the threats of their parents. So uh, consequently, I refused a recommendation to be head RA the following year. I like to think of Titus as Paul's enforcer. He is the go-to guy. He is dependable. Earlier in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we find that Titus had been entrusted with the delicate task of taking the rebuke letter to the Corinthian church. And then in 2 Corinthians, we find him following up to evaluate their repentance and coming back with a wonderful report that they had indeed turned back to the Lord. Also, we uh, see even earlier in Titus's life, uh, around the time of his conversion, that he did not cave to the fear of man, by which some Judaizers were pressuring him to undergo circumcision. Being a Gentile, they wanted him to uh, honor and respect the uh, Jewish uh, ritual purity requirements, but Titus and Paul refused, as doing so would undermine and compromise the freedom that we have in Christ and the saved by grace alone through faith alone as uh, given to us in the gospel. Titus here is commissioned to straighten things out on the rowdy island of Crete. He is called to put things in order to complete what has been left undone, namely to appoint elders in the various towns that Paul and Titus had apparently evangelized in an itinerant ministry of church planting. And Paul provides his apprentice with a thorough list of criteria, very similar to 1 Timothy 3 that Pastor DeBruin preached on a couple months ago. Now, we don't see any evidence of Titus sharing Timothy's timid disposition. Nevertheless, he faced tremendous challenges confronting false teachers and troublemakers on this wild island. I believe the letter of Titus reminds us that there comes a time when the Lord's shepherds have to set things straight and even to put people in their place. We're reminded here that we live in a fallen world. Things are bent and out of shape, both in the natural world and in the human heart. But God's grace is able to make straight what the world, the flesh, and the devil has made crooked. First tonight, we want to consider the foundation of God's calling for church leadership. This foundation is not coming from the will of man. It's not a function of the state. It does not even originate from man's need. Rather, this foundation is of God, namely God's call, 
and God's character, as we see in verses 1 through 4 in the opening of the letter. Now, like many of his letters, as Paul opens up, he, he's using similar language that we've seen before, and he is echoing back to his ministry calling. You see Paul's calling as an apostle, as a servant, and there's echoes back to his original Damascus Road experience, where Paul was confronted and rebuked by the resurrected Lord uh, Jesus Christ himself, who turned Paul from an enemy into an ally in the service of the kingdom. And so Paul gladly announces himself as a bondservant or a slave of God. He is an apostle commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And his purpose is to build up the elect, calling God's people from every nook and cranny across the earth to assemble together for worship and works of service in Jesus' name. Paul also here talks about his purpose as calling to preach the word. And this is the responsibility passed on through the ages to pastors and preachers, teaching elders who carry on the torch of leadership. It's according to the command of God, our Savior. When we think of God as our Savior, we think of God the Redeemer who delivered his people Israel out of the house of bondage uh, long ago from the hands of Pharaoh. We're reminded how God had commanded Moses to rebuke and to correct and train the people of God in the righteousness of God's law. How he raised up priests to instruct the people to live lives of holiness. And how he called forth prophets who would in turn call back wayward kings and nobles and the peoples to renew the covenant of God's grace and restore fellowship with their creator. And now, likewise, in the age of the gospel, God continues to call men as preachers of the truth. In fact, the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. So we have a foundation rooted in God's call... And the foundation is, uh, comes from God's character. Now, many Old Testament leaders, as we survey the scriptures, needed somewhat reassurance to trust God. We see this in Abraham, who in many ways caved to his fears and his doubts as God was calling him. And it took him a while to fully believe the promises of God. And to the point he was ready to sacrifice his own son Isaac, in a great act of faith. Even Moses quaked and quivered as the Lord called him and then pruned him, demonstrating his mighty acts by overthrowing Pharaoh and delivering Israel from the house of Egypt. Gideon set out a fleece. And yet time and time again, God proved himself faithful. In the words of Joshua, not one Good promise of the Lord our God has failed. Every one has been fulfilled. And here Paul brings to focus the gospel message. That our faith rests upon this eternal hope. This hope in God who does not lie, who has promised us salvation from before the dawn of time. And so we have this great assurance that our salvation, our inheritance, is secure forever in the promise of God 
who is our Savior. Notice that this text uniquely points to God as Savior, and then verse 4 is Jesus Christ, our Savior. In fact, like no other letter, Paul explicitly affirms the deity of Christ. You can look at chapter 2, verse 13, where it refers to him as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A wonderful proof text to the testimony of the New Testament that Jesus Christ is fully God and our only Savior. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ that we see the character of God in human flesh, right before us, visible, confirming the testimony of God's unfailing faithfulness throughout the ages. God who does not lie, who does not cheat, who does not offer us bait and switch tactics. He does not manipulate us to get us to obey him. The God who is altogether righteous, who can be trusted, and you can count on it. Recently, I've been reading some books by atheists. You may recognize some of these authors, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins. These men have been on the New York Times bestseller list for the last couple years. I wanted to read the other perspective as I prepare a series this summer for our college students on belief and unbelief. As I've been reading these authors' works, it saddens me to find men so intelligent, brilliant in many ways, who testify to reason and science as their standard of truth, and yet finding their reasoning deeply flawed, and their thinking deranged and even futile. In their many attacks upon religion in general, they make a particular vicious attack against the church, and some of their grievances are fair game. The church does have history throughout, it does have baggage throughout its history. But you find an underlying current underneath that venom is a deep loathing of God. In the deep recesses of their darkened souls is a mistrust. And consequently, a lashing out at God. They assail the God of the Bible as a sadist. As a tyrannical dictator who, in their efforts, are trying to convince readers that God is man-made and not to be trusted. Paul describes them well in verse 15, saying that to the pure all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Such is the warping, twisting nature of sin to misshapen a mind to pull it away from God. And yet God can straighten them out and straighten them to know and believe and affirm the truth of the living God. I think we have to confess, if we're honest with ourselves, there's just a little hint of atheism in our own belief system. All of us have a temptation, like our first parents, to want to be God at times. We'd rather prop up something else as God to something that we can manage and control. We get tired of living by faith. The uncertainty of trusting in this great God whose ways 
are not fully known to us. We may be tempted to accuse God of harming us when things don't work out the way we'd like them to work out. He may let us down, disappoint us, not fulfill our expectations. But underlying these thoughts oftentimes are deep cultural assumptions. Perhaps we've bought into the myth that God exists for our own personal happiness. And so we grow increasingly self-consumed as we allow our minds to be twisted and shaped by the world rather than straightened out by the Word of God. It's the Word of God that straightens us, that irons us out, that delivers us from such pity parties and sets us free to enjoy the glorious call of the cross, to gaze at God in all of the beauty of His holy and righteous character, reminding us that He alone is our faithful Redeemer who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He is the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for the sheep. And He has given us His testimony throughout the ages through the men and women He has called to bear His likeness. And so we move on to verses 5 through 9 to consider this criteria of leadership as Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders in the towns that they have established a a foothold for the infant church. Notice first that the word elders, elders in verses 5 and 6, and word for overseer or bishop in verse 7, are essentially the same. There may be subtle distinctions, but we are convinced that these are the same role, the same function. The Bible does not affirm an an Episcopal system of bishops overseeing elders in local churches. But rather, the focus here is Paul outlining the qualifications for elder. First character, and then doctrine. In verse 6, we kind of get a summary, I think, a, a lead virtue of character, the quality of blamelessness, that an elder must be above reproach. This means that he is not prone to accusations or even suspicious of evildoing. He has a reputation that's held in high esteem amongst others. Notice also that verse 6 seems to address issues of family life. It literally says that this man, assuming he's married, is a one-woman man. Now, throughout the ages, we have taken this to uh, critique and to outlaw polygamy in the New Testament church, and that's a good thing. But I would agree with uh, other scholars that say that the main point is the bigger issue, that an elder is called to be faithful to his wife. This means that he is not an adulterer. He is not a flirt with other women or media or things on the internet. He is a man who loves his wife as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. We even had a, a, one of our own missionaries uh, somewhat recently asked to be uh, reassigned from his missions assignment because some of the leadership in this ministry effort were, were drawing in men who did not qualify according to this rule. We're not one woman, one woman men. 
and yet we're trying to train them for leadership in this indigenous church. And we supported this uh, young missionary as he chose to move on to something else that followed biblical standards for uh, elder requirements. Now, the list of criteria also moves on to talk about the elder's children. It says that if he has children, that they are those who believe, who are not open to reports of, uh, of wildness or disobedience. And I think there's few verses that strike more fear in the hearts of would-be pastors or elders than this one, especially if they have teenagers. Here is a, a, a sticky, challenging verse. Every conscientious Christian parent I am aware of has deep concern over the spiritual formation of his children and their development of godly character. We as Christian parents are well aware of the responsibilities of parenting, the consequences of our own shortcomings and the outcome of our own children. In light of that, I, uh, in wrestling with this verse, I have to resist those interpretations that would apply this verse in the most strictest of terms as a kind of litmus test that goes something like this, that uh, assuming, well, one of, the, one of the applications of this would assume that any man who had an unruly teen or perhaps a stray adult child or even a difficult child at home, is automatically disqualified from the office of an elder. And if that were case, we would have a lot fewer elders. There are certainly many men who fail in their calling as, father, as fathers. The Bible lists several examples. Eli, who failed to restrain his sons and therefore was rejected from the priesthood. Such men should not be elders or pastors. But I think in reading this uh, verse in, in comparison with 1 Timothy 3, 4, we get a bigger picture of what is required here. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 4 says that elders must manage their families well and their children should respect him. It paints a picture of the man as a good steward, a faithful steward over his home loving and managing his children well, instructing them and disciplining them. But as we know well, full well, as children grow up into adulthood, they have to own the faith themselves. And so the important principle here, we believe, is that the big picture of the man's life is one who has been faithful. A man who has provided godly direction in his home. And even through the blips of temporary of seasons of rebellion with difficult children. We see oftentimes the man who perseveres through those seasons and loves their children well and see many of them come back to repentance. We see an example of godliness that's commendable to the rest of the church. This past fall, Abraham Piper, one of the several sons of famed pastor and author John Piper, released an article in which he shared his story of abandoning the Christian faith at the age of 19. 
For several years, he lived a life of unbelief and immorality before finally repenting and returning to Christ. In writing his article, he was aiming to give hope to parents just like his own who were heartbroken and baffled by their rejection. And in this article, he lists several things of what parents can do to love a prodigal child while also honoring their Lord. Abraham commended both his parents and their church for their faithfulness to continue to lift up Christ, to pray for him, to maintain communication with him, to love him, respect him, and even his friends, to continue to engage in his life despite the pain and the humiliation they were suffering. And I believe the testimony of the Piper's faithful love to their wayward son fulfilled the requirements of Titus 1.6, regardless of whether he returned to the fold later on. As we go on to verse 7, Paul lists a number of negative qualities that are to be absent from the elder's life. He is not to be overbearing. This word can also mean self-willed or arrogant. Such a man has to have everything his own way. Rather, he must be a man committed to doing things the Lord's way, in a spirit of graciousness. He's not to be quick-tempered. Now, we know that anger in and itself is not sinful. And yet, we, we know all too well that anger is oftentimes rooted in offended pride, rising from selfish motives. And so the elder must know how to eat humble pie, give himself to selfless service, and take his anger to the cross. He is not to be a drunkard, nor addicted to any other substance abuse. He must, be, he must refuse to be mastered by anything except Christ and his word. He's not to be a man of violence, not a man of fists, but a man of words, speaking not for war, but for peace. Not a provoker, but a reconciler. And the last negative quality to avoid is a man who is greedy for material gain. Judas was greedy and betrayed Christ. You cannot love both God and money, said Jesus. And Paul wrote that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Peter likewise says in his first epistle, that elders must be shepherds of God's flock, not because you must, but because you are willing, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. For our compensation is the joy of the Lord and not material substance. And then in verse 8, there's a list of positive uh, character traits of hospitality, a man who loves goodness, who is self-controlled, who is just and holy and disciplined. This is quite a list. This is quite a tall order. And I hope and pray that any man who would feel called to the pastorate or to be an elder in Christ's church, I would hope and pray that he would not share the same attitude as 
the rich young ruler whom Jesus encounters in Luke chapter 18. The man asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus proceeds to list for him five of the Ten Commandments. And in a pretentious spirit of self-congratulations, the man says, all of these things I have kept since I was a boy. I hope that all of us, none of us, would be so quick to confirm ourselves and commend ourselves. We should shudder at such a list. Because if it does not remind us of our failings and direct us to the cross of Christ, then I don't know what will. When I lose my temper with my children, I'm reminded that I am a sinner and in desperate need of a Savior. When I find my heart being allured by money and things of this world, I'm convicted that I need to repent and return to Christ who alone is my consolation and my satisfaction. I repeatedly need the healing balm of the gospel to massage those wounds in my heart from the ill-spoken words of others. Paul's list is not a legalistic set of rules. Just do these things and you will live. Rather, they are a high bar standard to remind us of our need for grace. A picture of holiness for which to strive after and provides us a criteria by which we may Estimate who in God's eyes is a man worthy to serve in whom Christ is being formed. Well, the criteria not only includes character, but also the matter of doctrine. And it is summarized in verse 9. And I would say it is this, that first and foremost, an elder must believe the gospel. He must believe the trustworthy testimony of Christ, the message that has been taught down through the ages, first from the apostles and their Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, there are good men who satisfy these character requirements who don't believe. By God's common grace, many of them attain to a high measure of virtue. Such men can be great leaders. In business, military, government. But they cannot be elders in Christ's church. There are also good men in our churches who believe the gospel. Who are exemplary Christians in many ways, but cannot be elders due to doctrinal differences. On matters of the Reformed faith, perhaps, on election or baptism... We believe, according to the system of doctrine found in the Westminster Standards, that uh, our men must subscribe to these teachings in accordance with what we believe is the best expression of biblical faith. And the implied requirement in verse 9 is that these men need to be able to teach, both, both positively to encourage the young in their faith, and also on the negative side to correct the naysayers to be able to defend biblical doctrine. 
What I want you to notice in closing on this part of the message is that there are no education requirements. There are no professional accomplishments listed on the criteria for elders. Paul doesn't provide a list of administrative and management skills. Now, these are valuable assets for the church. And oftentimes, these things are not acquired without a measure of biblical character. But the main thing Paul is after in elders is character. Godly character and commitment to the Christian faith. In a nutshell, an elder needs to be a picture of what a Christian ought to be. Not perfect, but humble. A man who is attaining biblical wisdom, a man of integrity, compassion, and faithfulness. He is the kind of man that you would want your daughter one day to marry. And so we can trust him with the bride of Christ. Well, thirdly, we've considered the foundation of leadership, developed the task of appointing elders and leadership in the church. Lastly, in verses 10 through 16, we see the challenge of leadership that Titus faces. I call this the challenge of the law and grace. Notice uh, Paul's challenge to Titus, that he has to restrain those destructive persons and false teachers in the church. And uh, Paul doesn't mince with words. He calls them rebellious. They are empty talkers and deceivers. And he makes a reference to the circumcision group or sect. This would be a Jewish sect, as we read through the New Testament, were what might be called Judaizers, those Jews who were trying to burden Gentiles to adopt the Jewish ritual purity requirements of the Old Covenant. And uh, we see this repudiated in the book of Galatians as a taint to the gospel. We see it in Acts 15 when the first church council uh, rejects such requirements as unnecessary and even uh, teachings that compromise the gospel of grace. And so Titus, as he encounters this false teaching, must silence these troublemakers. He means to lay down the law of the gospel by rebuking these men sharply, like an unwavering judge. He is called to protect the flock with an unbending determination to keep them from being led astray by false teaching. But I want you to notice, as we look at verses 10 through 16, that these men who needed rebuking also needed grace. Paul indicts the men of Crete, uh, of Crete uh, using the words of their philosopher-poet Epimenides from the 6th century B.C., who writes these uh, telling words, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. He must have been popular. Titus is supposed to find elders out of this slime pool. This is what God has given him to work with. But I want you to notice in verse 13 is that Titus is to rebuke these men so that they may be sound in their faith. There is hope for them. There are those guys who need to be hit over the head with a two-by-four in order for them to get it. And Titus comes with his two-by-four ready to give it to them. 
in my own experience as an RA. I wasn't raising up elders, but I had many opportunities to witness to young men who were heading down the path of destruction. I oftentimes was not liked. I received veiled threats from their older Kappa Alpha fraternity brothers. 